Welcome back to the Coaching Kernan Podcast Network. We have a special treat for you today. I promised two new shows this week on our network, and, and here's the first one of them. We are very excited to have Joe Frazero here with Man on Second Podcast. Joe, for our audience, is was with the Marlins. And as we know, the Marlins had a few constants through the year, but Joe was one of them. He served as MLB.com's beat reporter for 19 seasons. He's a veteran newsman. Uh, that tenure included a 2003 World Championship. Moving into the new ballpark, a front row seat for the peaks of the careers of guys like Dontrell Willis, Hanley Ramirez, Josh Johnson, the late Jose Fernandez, Giancarlo Stanton, who was known as Mike back then, and other greats, uh, almost spanning about two-thirds of the franchise existence, if I'm right. Joe, welcome to the Podcast Network. We're excited to have you. Oh, Dave, uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for having me. I, I couldn't be more excited uh, to be part of it, and thanks for the the, the kind introduction. And uh, yeah, just a uh, quick to our audience. Um, we're going to kind of focus on on prospects mostly. It won't be always, but um, we're gonna we're gonna stay uh, true to the the spirit of this of this channel. We're going to take you inside baseball. We're going to have great guests, and we have one lined up today, and we'll get to our guest in a minute. But yeah, since I took early retirement in 2020, um, I, I formed Man on Second Podcast and and Man on Second Baseball, which there is a website as well. Uh, just kind of to keep my brand. And as I kind of figured out what I wanted to do, uh, I call it, I'm like semi-retired, but, um, and it gives me a channel to get my, my voice. I'm also uh, writing still for the people in Florida and especially South Florida. I have stories that appear weekly in the Palm Beach Post and um, that's a Gannett owned paper. And my stories run in places like Jacksonville, Pensacola, which are where the Marlins AAA and AA affiliates are. So the writing's still there, but I couldn't, Dave, be more excited about joining this network and, and kind of building uh, what I think is going to be something really special. Oh, we agree. I think you're the busiest retired person I ever met. You sound busy. <laughs> Joe, uh, just before we start with, with your special guest, I'll let you introduce him in a second. Tell us about the name Man on Second, how you came about that name. It's an interesting little story. Yeah, yeah. It's a metaphor for me. It's uh, it's basically, um, I, I took the early retirement. It was at the end of the 2020. As we all know, that was the COVID year. And, and you know, um, I had just turned 60. So not to give my age away, but I, I just turned 62. But at the time I was 60, uh, this great opportunity, MLB.com, couldn't have been nicer to me. Gave a, a really good option. But then I was like a month later, I'm like, what do I want to do? And then I'm like, okay, uh, how invested, how involved do I want to be? So um, I, I was like, okay, I could continue this. I was batting around some corny, terrible names. Uh, my son comes up and Stan knows my boy. Uh, he goes, dad, why don't you call yourself man on second? Because at the time, the extra inning rule came around where they put the runner on second. He said, you're like an extra innings of your career, but the game isn't over for you yet. So uh, we got a logo. We got everything going. And um, and as usual, my son's instincts were, were better than mine. So the name is stuck, but it's really a metaphor for me. No, that's a great story. And your son, is, for the audience, is, is a, a scout for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Joe, again, welcome to the show. We're, we're very excited and very fortunate to have you as part of our network. And uh, you have a great guest. I'll let you get to our guest right now. Yeah, and and thanks, Dave. And and yeah, I couldn't be more excited. And my it was I when I was uh, asked to do this, and and we we reached agreement. This man was the first person I thought of. You know, he was the ideal one for me to to launch a kind of prospect centric um, show. And it's to the industry. He needs no introduction. His name is Stan Meek. 
I've known Stan. Stan, you started when I did, right, with the Marlins, 2002. Yeah, I was a 2002 guy. I came over, we were the Expos, as you know, and then uh, all of a sudden we, uh, Mr. Laurie brought the Marlins and we all ran over there and have been there. It was there from 2002 until uh, I retired in 20. Yeah, yeah, and I basically when Stan went, that's when I said I got to go. If Stan's going, I got to step away as well. Well, just a quick background. Stan, to me, is one of the most accomplished amateur scouting directors in the past two decades. Among the many, you know, players that he he drafted, uh, we can go back to Josh Johnson. We can go back to Giancarlo Stanton, um, Chris, uh, Christian Yelich, J.T. Real Muto, uh, the late great Jose Fernandez. Um, a couple of years back, Trevor Rogers, last year's Rookie of the Year runner-up, still with the Marlins, and and so many more. And um, and and you know, as we kind of dive into this, Stan, I actually want to—you were with the Rays, right? When I kind of want to even jump into with with Josh Hamilton and that Josh Beckett 1999 draft. Did you have any input there? Yeah, I had uh, quite a bit of input with our club. I was with uh, the race at that time, and we really came down to a two-person race for us between, uh, as you said, Josh Hamilton and Josh Beckett. So we were bearing down on two Joshes. So I spent a lot of time but on the flight between the Carolinas and uh, and Houston, and uh, we, we saw those guys quite a bit. And uh, it was a really close race to for who we were going to take, and uh, – as it turned out, we ended up taking the bat and Josh Hamilton, but those were two great looking young players. What, as, as you look back and, and, you know, we're going 1999 to obviously Josh Hamilton, a, a great career. We know the personal issues he, he and the demons that he wrestled with. We know the Marlins took Josh Beckett second overall, uh, second overall. We know he was a world series MVP in 03 and then was a, another world series champion with the Red Sox in 07. And now we look at, Fast forward to the 2022 draft, and there was a kid, a legacy player out of Oklahoma. What is a, a commit to Oki State? You're an Oklahoma guy. I know you guy. But the Baltimore Orioles took him 1-1, and that's Jackson Holiday. And I don't know how much you saw of Jackson, uh, but do you have any stories you could tell our audience as we're kind of bridging a couple of decades ago to today? Yeah, you know, in fact, I had a club call me. Uh, you know, I retired in 20, so I've kind of been hanging out and doing a little fishing and, and uh, enjoying my grandkids. And so I did have a club call me about him that was picking high and said, hey, would you mind taking a peek at him for us since you kind of have nothing else to do now? So I said, okay, we'll do it. And I went and saw him, and uh, wow, what a good-looking young player. I, You know, obviously, Dad was a great player with the Rockies, and so you had all those bloodlines, which I think is a, is a meaningful thing for amateur players coming up. If they've been around the game, been around the clubhouse, you know, they just seem to acclimate quicker into the game. So I went and saw him uh, here. Actually, I live in Norman, Oklahoma, where the University of Oklahoma is. Now, he actually was playing here in town. So I went and saw him, and uh, I'm not sure what he cannot do. He runs well. He throws. He's got great instincts. Uh, he swings the bat. He's got power. He's not a big guy, but ball really comes off his bat, really has a feel to play. My guess is he'll stay at short. I don't know why he wouldn't. And uh, it's it's one of the better looking complete packages of players, although he's not a big guy like his father. He's strong and he is really athletic and uh, a really good looking young player. Yeah, let's talk a little bit because, you know, it was interesting because it, it seemed like it was going to come down to another legacy player in Drew Jones, the son, of course, of Andrew Jones, 
who went two overall to the Arizona Diamondbacks, center fielder who many say is the mirror image of his dad. And and you talked about the, the legacy players, the guys who had the dads and they they know you know what the sport is like. How how much of an advantage do you think that is for a player? I think it's a great advantage. You know, I think one of the toughest things for young players to adjust to is the big league lifestyle, the big league walking into a big league clubhouse and feeling comfortable and confident. Uh, I think that's one of the things that slows players down as they try to make that a jump to the major leagues. Well, when you've grown up in a big league clubhouse because your father played and you've been around it, I think that takes away one of the really big obstacles in getting to the major leagues and staying there. So for a guy like, you know, Drew Jones, uh, God, what a great looking package of tools that was. I saw a lot of video of him and uh, that doesn't look a lot like his father. And, uh, and, it, and again, with him and Jackson, I don't think you could have gone wrong either pick. And I think, you know, the, as soon as one team picked, you know, as soon as the Orioles picked Jackson, I don't think uh, Arizona waited too long to pick Drew. So uh, I think it has a big advantage for, for a guy to walk in uh, with a father who's been in the game a long time. Stan, something else has changed in the game since, you know, you and I both stopped doing this more full time. This whole transfer portal in college. Now, the two kids we're talking about are high school kids, but this affects them as well. And the NIL, that name image likeness deals. And I honestly thought if let's say Jackson Holiday slid to three or four with his dad on the staff at Okie State, I guess his uncle, the coach at Okie State. And the money he could have made, I, I thought he might be a hard sign. But over $8 million obviously, and going 1-1, you know, got him in, in to sign with Baltimore. But how do you think that's going to play into, and do you think it will affect maybe a top five high school player um, down the line? You know, because the other thing to keep in mind here, it's affecting recruiting uh, for these high school kids, is the, the transfer portal, which may get, you may get a star from another school coming into your program instead of going with the high school kid. Yeah, it's changed a lot. I I can't. It, it doesn't even hardly resemble what I remember because I did coach before. I actually did thirty years in professional baseball. I was a pitching coach at Oklahoma for like a dozen years, so uh, we didn't have those issues to deal with at the time. But this thing changes on a daily basis. It seems like when guys jump in the portal, and then I'm you know it just it's it's a lot different. And then with the NIL stuff going on, it's become more of a uh, you, we, we know it's amateur sports, but it's almost like professional sports. So, uh, and I'm sure some of these schools, the bigger baseball schools that really emphasize baseball, I would think they would be involved in the NIL stuff to try to get the high school kid to stay with them and go on to college. And uh, so it has, it's changed. You can change the face of your ball club quite a bit. I mean, Oklahoma went to the college world series last year and they did a great job recruiting, but they'd also gotten into the transfer portal some to, to bring some of those guys in. So it can't, you can change a program real quickly. What is your, your general feel? And you've never shied away. And, and all the years I've talked to you, best player. But then you had the school of thought, college, a little more advanced over the high school kid. But that doesn't always pan out. I mean, we saw Giancarlo Stanton in the big leagues at age 20, Jose Fernandez in the big leagues at 20. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing the Bobby Witt Juniors jumping really fast, you know, number two overall pick a few years back. Um, you know, he got to the big leagues before Adley Rushman, uh, you know, who was the number one pick out of college. What is your general feeling about the college route or the high school route? 
Well, I would always believe in the best tool players uh, with the best makeup and instincts is always the way to go, regardless of high school or college. The, the thought I always had, if they were similar, if you felt they were the same player, take the college guy because he's probably quicker. But I always look for the upside. And I think in Miami, when I worked in Miami, we had to go for upside because we weren't going to sign big free agents. So we had to have impact through the draft. And if you're right, if you're if you're fortunate enough to be right and hit on a, a guy like, you know, the Yelich was, I think he was also 20 when he got to the big league. So yeah. um, if you're fortunate in doing that, you know, athleticism and tools are what plays, whether it's high school or college. So the college guy's probably a little bit more of a finished product and, and it's always a little more upside probably to the high school player uh, that you hadn't quite pulled out of him yet since he's younger. Um I always went and tried to go with the biggest upside and, and because you, it, again, it's this, the amateur draft is the best place to put your money. You get more bang for your buck in the amateur draft. than I think you do for free agents in the big leagues because for, we signed Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Stanton at the time for 700 and something thousand dollars. And yeah, what it he might've been on contract? the nose. Yeah. Yeah. So for signed a contract with 300 and something million. So pretty good return on your investment. So I think the amateur draft is by far the best way to go. And I would always try to hit for the top tool guys. How about the, the 20 rounds now? Cause you know, not too, just a couple of years ago, it was 40 rounds. You probably remember when it was more than that, but you know, the, the 20 rounds, how has that impacted it? Um, is it kind of pushing more kids to, to college? If you're, um, you know, you're not getting the money that you thought you could make if you would have been a seventh rounder, and then you're like, hey, you know what? I'll just go college. Yeah, I would say that it has probably going to push more high school kids to college because the money runs out a little bit quicker. Um, and I don't really necessarily think that's a bad thing. I would think for the most of the high school kids, the college experience and, and uh, just getting some maturity physically is not a bad thing. But there are those high school kids where people are willing to pay them now and uh and, and also, you know, normally those kids are pretty physical or pretty well ready to go. So uh, it has changed, though. The 20 rounds has definitely changed things. And I do think it's probably pushing a few more kids to college. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because in a month, um, the perfect game, the Woodbat tournament is going to be up in Jupiter. And and I, I love going to that event um, because you get the best of the best there. And I know there's a lot of people who don't like the showcases. Um, I kind of see them more for what they are in terms of, you know, anything that gets like a year ago, Drew Jones, Jackson Holiday, and Tamar Johnson in the same room. And Elijah Green was invited, but for whatever reason, he couldn't make it. Um, I'm all for that. And I could just go to field seven or field two on the backfields at Roger Dean Stadium Complex. But what's your general thought about those kind of events? And and I know the downside is we, we tend to look for the showcase player more than the pure player. Um, but that's a big time event. And, uh, you know, just your thoughts on that event. Well, I, I really like the event and I'll tell you why, what it does, it puts good players against good players, uh, at the high school level, which you don't hardly ever get to see in a, in a high school game. Uh, you're usually going to see a high school play, you know, position player here to get somebody throwing 70 or 75 miles. And it's hard to judge sometimes, uh, their ability with the bat when you don't get to see them against better players. But that's one thing this event does. And what that does, it puts players on the map for you. Uh, and as a scouting director, 
that's huge because you have to be ready the next spring to send your guys to the right places and having those guys playing against each other, seeing their tools and also seeing their ability, uh, whether it's a pitcher to, to make pitches against a good hitter or a good hitter with a wood bat to, st- you know, to stack up, see how he stacks up against a guy with a good arm. You just don't get that too much at the high school level. So that's a huge event for me. And I think it's, it's something that uh, for the players is great, but for the scouts, it's even greater. <laughs> yeah. And then, so just a visual uh, for, for fans who aren't sure what these things are like, you usually have what Stan, you got, you got seven fields basically going and then you got, and actually oh, that's just the Marlin side. These are the same fields that Marlin spring training is at. And on the, and I think it's equal over at the, the Cardinal side because Marlins and the Cardinals share the, the Roger Dean stadium uh, uh, complex in Jupiter, Florida. And you got, you know, you got parents and, and so forth there, but it is a scout fest and it's a golf cart fest. And you know, like to me, if I don't know where, where do I need to be, it's usually where the most golf carts are. That's usually where the players have, at the moment are, are playing. Yeah, that's usually how it works. I mean, if you're run, if you're driving along, because and again, we were wearing out our thank goodness for cell phones. We're wearing out our cell phones, texting each other on, "Hey, I got a guy on field three playing against a guy, you know, pitcher. I've got a guy on field eight over here on the Cardinal side," and so we're running back and forth. But then, if you're kind of in between and you see a sea of golf carts by the guys behind home plate, you go, okay, there's probably a pretty good arm going. So you whip in there and kind of get a look and see, because these guys literally are from all over the country and we would have our scouts, our area scouts kind of give us, you know, what teams they're on. And we'd have this whole thing we would put together to try to get organized on when a guy's going to be pitching, uh, when the guy's going to be playing against the best pitcher. And so it really is about a three day it, your hair's on fire, but it really puts you in position for the next spring to be ready then to disseminate your guys out from, from Maine to, you know, San Diego. They're trying to find, to get back on those guys. And it really saves you a lot of time by the work you put in there in that, that fall tournament. Yeah, it it is a fun event. And just a quick background on that, well, just a couple of years ago, I'm watching Bobby with junior on the, those fields. Um, you know, like we said a year ago with, with Jackson Holiday and Drew Jones, you know, and, and Tamar Johnson, those are three of the first four picks in the draft. And, you know, that's why I always argue that, yes, the state of Florida, much like the state of Oklahoma, is football state, but I, you can make a strong argument about the amount of baseball that comes through this state and the players. And and on top of just like the perfect game event, like that, that's more of a showcase wood bat, those team events uh, – I think one year, Christian Yelich and, and Nolan Arenado were you know, from the same area of California. They were on the same team winning a championship at 16 years old. So if you were living in that neighborhood, you could have seen two of the best players in the National League in the last decade, two, you know, MVP, one MVP, and certainly MVP caliber, uh, certainly, and, and Arenado, right in your backyard, and you don't even know it. Yeah, it, it's a really it. it th- these are great things again because you put good players against good players, and that's again that's the hardest thing for us to find uh, our matchups. And at some point, I know we may talk about Real Muto, and I I was very fortunate on JT to to run him down against a future. I mean, it just was an unbelievable deal because I ran him down against a future uh, rookie of the year that he was facing on, in the in the game. 
and then a, another major leaguer played short in the same game, which doesn't very well happen in a high school game. So that's totally uh, not normal. So to have these kind of perfect game events and these showcases, um, while we used to think it was community scouting, we'd call it, and the old-time guys would go, I don't want anybody to know who I like, or I don't want these guys to be seen by everybody. It just it just gives us so much information in such a small period of time. That's great. It's great stuff. Yeah, let me ask you this because this is kind of a knock on on it uh, on the on the showcase and just kind of the development. And you're a former pitcher yourself, um, so people know Stan actually pitched for Oklahoma in the in the College World Series uh, back in the back in the day. I think I think Stan's the reason why the College World Series became a big deal, uh, a much bigger deal, <laughs> right, Stan? Sure, of course. <laughs> but, you know, the state of pitching in general, and, and this is real inside baseball stuff, because you're seeing kids who throw very hard, but you're trying to develop and discover and find starting pitching. But how much of a challenge now when there's so much is you're chasing velocity, meaning for the listeners who may not know what that means, is you're like basically Max Everett, 95, like their scouts that won't even turn the rate, you know, won't even send a report in a guy that throws net less than 95. There's certain teams that play that way. Um, that, you know, when you're chasing velocity and that's where the game is to the art of pitching. Yeah, I will say this, that velocity, you know, is just really one part of pitching. And I know it's become a huge uh, piece of it because of what we're seeing, you know, with all the velocities given on the television screen, and everybody talking about, you know, every announcer talks about, well, that was 97. The next pitch, that's 99. And they're all talking about velocity. Well, I will tell you that those big league hitters, if they know it's coming and it's in the wrong spot, they can turn around, you know, 100 miles an hour like they can turn around 85 miles an hour. So velocity is just one piece of the puzzle. So does it get you on the map? Yes, it does. Does it make you a first-round pick? No, it doesn't. I, I don't think so. So what we're still looking for are guys who can use what they have. There's two pieces to that pitcher. His, his tools or his velocity, his ability you know, to throw hard or whatever. And then his, secondly, it's his ability to use what he has. So uh, while we see two guys side-by-side side that may be throwing 95, one you really like and the other one you don't like at all because you may not like his delivery. You don't like his ability to repeat. You don't like his ability to spin the ball the right way. You don't have like his ability to locate. And the other guy, you might like it quite a bit better. So, yeah, velocity is a big deal, but it's only part of the equation. You know, Stan, in the last few years of your when of your tenure, the TrackMan or StatCast, TrackMan's the, the technology that powers StatCast, Cast, which we see on all the major league games. We'll see 107 mile an hour home run, like Stan said, 99.5 fastball. Um, those are on those backfields. How had how did TrackMan StatCast impact your the amateur side of scouting? Because you're seeing these prep players and the colleges have it as well. Yeah, I would say this again. It, it you know, gets it on your radar. When you see a guy throwing 96 or seven, he's on your radar or you see a guy swing a bat and the ball comes off at 107, 109 miles an hour, a high school kid, you go, Whoa, that that's, that's impacting the ball, but it still comes down to, so those things are there, they help, but it still comes down to, and I get, I guess you're talking to a guy from the old school. It still comes down to, your ability to use those tools that you have. And I think that's where scouting really is separated out. 
if you, you know, just because a guy throws hard does not make him a great pitcher. Just because a guy has a great exit velocity doesn't make him a great hitter. There's so many more things to go into it. So really those get him on the radar. And then yet our ability as scouts to differentiate how he can make adjustments, whether it's on the mound or at the plate and how he does that within an at bat or within a, a, you know, sequence as a pitcher. Uh, and that's why these things are so great because don't think for one second that the great pitcher, you know, that we were scouting at over there doesn't know who the good hitters are. So when they match up, then it's a kind of a cat and mouse game when you see who, who really can step up and, and perform. So those are, those are great things that we have to do that. And, uh, but again, I, I think the instincts and feel and all that really have to come into play when you're talking about taking guys and giving them, you know, like a holiday, $8 million to start out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great stuff, Stan. That's why I love talking to you about this stuff. Let, let's go down memory lane. Let, let's kind of uh, underline, you did kind of hint on JT, but let's start back in 2007. There's a kid named Mike Stanton who's being recruited by at University of Southern California football by Pete Carroll, offering this guy a football scholarship. There was basketball teams on him. The Miami Marlins take him in the second, or then the Florida Marlins take him in the second round. Mike Stanton, Giancarlo Stanton, talk about what you saw back then and what got you on Stanton and how he got drafted in the second round. Okay, uh, Mike Stanton was a three-sport athlete. He was all league in basketball. He was all league in football, uh, and he had. Probably not played quite as much baseball as the normal Southern California player. So uh, when we saw him, we saw him in the area code games, which again, there you go. One of those events that had 300 scouts probably there. Each team probably had 10 guys at least watching. And uh, he hit he hit balls in batting practice there that you, you like he hit them like Harper hit them when Bryce Harper walked in there. Same kind of same kind of thing. Hit them come way out of the ballpark. But when the game started, I don't think the whole area code that Mike Stanton got one hit. I don't think he got one hit. I'm not sure he made contact one time in that area code games. But what what we saw was we saw his ability to impact the baseball, and we saw how athletic he was, and we saw how big he was. So we knew, and he was 16 when he was in the area code games. He was a young, when he graduated, he graduated. At 17, he had turned 17 in November of his senior year. So he was a young, a young player. Um, so anyway, we, we went back to see him because we knew he had big power, big physical kid with big power. And so what I told our scout to do, because he, he swung and missed a lot. He still swings and misses a lot, but he can't impact the ball. So I kept telling our scout, do not worry about when you see him. He was up in the San Fernando Valley. And our scout lived down in the southern part of Southern Cal, so he had to drive the five freeway, which is a seven-lane mess every day, to try to get up there to see him. But I told him, I said, you need to go see him, and I don't want you to worry about anything he does out of the strike zone. Your job is to see, as you go along this spring, does his contact improve in the strike zone? In other words, when he swings at pitches in the strike zone that he should be able to hit, does his contact rate improve? Because, you know, he, had, he was just a, such a strikeout guy. So we watched that, we saw that, and we saw that improve as he went. And I think a lot of other people passed on him because, again, they just didn't feel like he would hit. And, and, and who, you know, who knows who's going to hit? It's the hardest thing probably to judge in, in sports uh, when you're talking about a 17-year-old high school kid. So we saw that. 
And we just took a shot on this one that we said, Hey, listen, if this guy's makeup, we think is great. We think he's a real worker. We think he uh, wants to play. And so we decided, you know, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try this guy. And so we tried him in the second round and obviously it, uh, it panned out pretty well. Wow. Yeah. That, that was a pretty good win right there. Cause this guy's like his monster. This guy can be a 500 home run guy in the big leagues. Well, again, he was a, he was what the old, the old coach I worked for. And I went to work at Oklahoma told me when you go recruit, I want you to recruit one ifers. And I said, one ifers, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you go out and recruit guys for us that you say, if we can get him to do this, then we have a good player. <laughs> he said, don't go out and recruit two and three and four ifers that if we can get him to do this, and then if we can get him to do that, and then if we can get him to change this, then you're just dreaming. But Stanton was a one effort. If he made enough contact, you had a major league player and an impact major league player because he could run and throw. Yeah. So. That's what we, you know, we took a gamble and we, okay, we believe because of what he's showing us that he will be able to hit. And sure enough, that's, uh, that's what's happened to the degree that, yeah, he's got a chance to hit 500 home runs. Yeah. And well, you guys hit on a guy in the first round in, in 2010, uh, another MVP that you drafted kid again from, from California, just real quick, because you got, you got Yelich in the first round and then you'll get, you get that real Muto story a little more in depth. You got him in the third round. He was a shortstop at the time. You were looking at him. And um, and then, you know, for our followers of the New York Mets, uh, you got a pretty good number seventh round pick there in, in Mark Hanna, who never actually played for the Marlins, but um, now is an impact player with the Mets. Kind of take us through that 2010 draft. Yeah, that, that was a really good draft for us as we look back on it. Yelich was a guy that we liked. We'd seen him the summer before as a junior while we were out there looking at another kid for the draft who was a senior. So we actually got an early look at him and saw him hit a long home run, followed him. Um, and the amateur side of things too, you really have to be careful. I think is that you really have to walk into a ballpark, seeing what, what a guy can do to get him drafted. Cause if you walk in seeing what he cannot do, you're, you're going to see that right away. And Yelich wasn't a great defender and he wasn't a great thrower. In fact, he was a poor thrower. We weren't sure where we were going to play him. But what he could do was he had the, that great combination of bat speed and rhythm as a hitter, which is one thing you really look for. There's kind of two kind of hitters. There's a hitter that just has bat speed, and then there's a hitter who has rhythm. But when you find a hitter who has rhythm and bat speed, then you really get excited. And that's what Yelich had. And so we thought, you know, we thought he might last because we were picking down in the 20s that year in the first round. We thought he might last a little bit because, again, you weren't sure where he was going to play. And then you, the throwing arm was not good. So we just love the bat and the athlete, the speed so much that we were fortunate to get him at 23. And then we almost, we were two picks away. It would, would have been a really crazy draft because we were two picks away from getting Andrelton Simmons in the second round. And we thought we were going to get him in the second round. We'd actually kind of had a deal worked out that if Yelich was gone, we were going to take Andrelton with our first pick. Well, obviously he gets picked two picks. So we take another guy who ended up pitching a little bit in the big leagues. And then third round, JT Real Muto was a crazy story because um, he was a shortstop and the literal, literally only high school game he ever caught. Um, I happened to be there with our area scout. We did not know that when we went there, we went there to see him play short. 
And the coach sees me and said, hey, my uh, pitcher's tender. I'm going to have to pitch my catcher. So Real Muto is going to have to catch today. So I apologize for that. That's really what he told me. I apologize that he's going to have to catch today. Well, that's the only game he caught in high school. And he's facing uh, a guy named Michael Fulmer from Deer Creek High School who ended up being the rookie of the year, I think, for the Detroit Tigers at some point. Yeah. And then Brian Anderson, who still plays for the Marlins, was playing short for Deer Creek High School. So it was an unbelievable game. But JT caught and did not know what he was doing. His, he was, his setup was awful, but his arm was great and his feet were great. And the first time at the plate, he hit a ball over the batter's eye. And then he ran plus on a ground ball. And it, it was just an unbelievable game that, uh, that really worked out for us. So we took him uh, in the third round. And I know we shock some people because I think some people, uh, and he's only 30 minutes up the road from me. So I get, you know, pretty good look at him, but, uh, a lot of people didn't, I don't think had him turned in. So it was a kind of a shock, but we were the only guys to get to see him catch. And so we felt like that was going to be his future. So it was really, yeah. really a fun day to scout. One of those interesting <laughs> days that you hardly ever get. <laughs> and what about in the seventh round? Because I mean, that's a remarkable draft. People don't realize how hard that is to hit on an MVP in Yelich, a perennial all-star in Real Muto, who's had a window of being the best catcher, arguably, in the sport. And then, like you said, you almost got Simmons in in the second round and and Mark Hanna in the seventh. Yeah, can I, I will tell you, our scout out there, John Hughes was a scout, still scouting out in that area. I think he scouts for maybe Oakland now, but uh, John was a, he coached at Cal Berkeley. And so John knew Cal Berkeley. And I will say this, there are certain schools in the United States, certain colleges that you just need to take players from because they end up getting to the big leagues. It's unbelievable. And Cal Berkeley, if you look back at their program, they're one of the, pro, they're one of the schools. I mean, Simeon came out of there, and we saw Simeon. He wasn't a great-looking college player, but Simeon became a great player. Canna we took in the, in the seventh round. There's been players come out of Cal Berkeley. It's just one of those schools that produces big leaguers. So when, when our scout out there said he liked him, uh, we ran a guy in to see him hit, and Canna is a little bit of a quirky guy. He's an interesting guy, but he's, a, he's you know, you think, what does he really do well? Well, that probably is what lost him for us because we took him in the seventh round, but I don't even think our people quite knew him well enough and they ended up let not protecting him. And that's how he got in the rule five draft. And I think he was like the second player. So we lost yeah. him before he ever played for us. But, um, yeah, that ended up being a, he ended up being a really, really nice player. And, yeah. Uh, and then, you yeah, know, one, the crazy we, player that the crazy player in that whole draft that we took that nobody talks about that was strange was, we took Blake Trinan, who is one of the premier relievers, and I think he's just getting ready to come back for the Dodgers now, out of uh, a college in, in the Dakotas. And he was literally going to be, uh, I don't know, he, he, we, had him, we had him agreed to for $25,000. $25, and he comes down and doesn't pass the physical with a shoulder issue, and so we don't sign him. And then what happens? He ends up. Um, going the next year, I think to Oakland, and then now he's one of the premier relievers that we we really had him agreed to. So that would have been another one in that draft that would have been very helpful to us. Wow, well, yeah. Before we kind of wrap this up, we'd be remiss, but we want to talk about 2011 because 
maybe the, the most talented pitcher I've ever covered, you know, and I've covered a lot of really good ones on a daily basis when you got Jose Fernandez in the first round and, and, uh, just what do you recall of, of Jose and how he kind of came on the map? We know his story when he came over from Cuba and settled into Tampa and, and the Marlins make him a first-round pick, and he has a meteoric rise and then the tragic uh, passing of him back in 2016. Yeah, I will tell you, Jose was a real interesting story in that uh, uh, Milwaukee had picks. I think we, we were picking 14. I think Milwaukee picked like 12 and 15. So we made sure that we did not speak to his agent about him at all because we thought, well, if we speak to the agent and tell him we're interested, the agent will take it to Milwaukee who picked in front of us and behind us. And if they liked him, they may would take him with a pick, their first pick, which would be in front of us. So we kind of kept that quiet. Uh, Jose was a real interesting, unique kid in the fact that he was so far beyond his years and ability to use his, his, his pitches and how he pitched and, and just had a great feel for it. We had no idea that he would be that good that fast, though. I mean, he went to the big leagues so quickly. and uh, But we did know that he was, you know, he was an athletic kid. He could swing the bat. And then, you know, the great thing about him was if, if, if he needed to kind of invent a pitch during the game, if, if his breaking ball was a little flatter and he needed to invent a breaking ball that went down a little more. He could just do it in the, in the middle of a game. It was a really freaky thing. And then he took his changeup from what was kind of an average changeup to like almost, you know, we graded two to eight. His changeup was about a five. We, he took it to a seven once he got uh, with the big league club. Just unbelievable ability to make pitches, adjust, and feel for pitching, and absolutely no fear. Just, ab- just I mean, he, in fact, I think his first game, he said uh, the, the area scout that had signed him, uh, the Marlins flew him to New York because his opening game was against the Mets. Against the Mets, yeah. Five innings and shutout ball, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the scout said, he asked Jose before the game, he goes, hey, how do you feel? He goes, are you nervous? He goes, uh, he goes, I was nervous when I got in a boat to you know, get out of Cuba to get to the United States. I was nervous when the person fell over out of the boat and I dove in to save him. And he goes, but I'm, I'm not nervous facing David Wright for the Mets. Not at all. So I thought, what a great line, you know, he, he wasn't worried about that. So, and he went out there and pitched great the first game. So just a unique, spe- exceptional talent. Such a shame that we lost him. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, the, the real tragedies. And, um, you know, we think everyone that he touched or thinks about him uh, still. But, you know, Stan, um, we could talk forever. And this is why I love having you on. And I, I think this is a, you know, I really thank you for making this first podcast, this premiere episode of Man on Second on the, the Coach and Kernan Network really special. And uh, and we're going we're gonna to wrap it up on that note. Uh, promise you'll come back, Stan. You know, uh, we'd love to have you on uh, often. Uh, but um, and and all the best to you, uh, the family as well. And and uh, for everyone, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this uh, first episode of the Man on Second podcast. Now with its new home, a reminder: follow um, follow us on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Download, follow um, on all the major platforms. Uh, we have big plans ahead, and uh, again, we'll be doing this next week with a, hopefully a new guest, but. We're going to be really hitting these home, and we really enjoyed it. And uh, great day to all.